HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. For more information, visit www.rt11.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In The Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli. Um, Before we get started today, I want to tell you guys about an exciting beverage class we have coming up at our wine bar on Fora. Um, We're going to be teaming up with the one and only great Ivy Mix to do a tequila and a mezcal class with tequila ocho and peridalma mezcal this upcoming May 3rd. Get your party going for uh, getting geared up for Cinco de Mayo. Um, you can get tickets at and for a beverage series eventbrite.com. Alex, did I get that right? Yes, I did. Thanks, Alex. Uh, awesome. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, it'll be uh, 3 uh, 3.30 in the afternoon, I believe. 3.30 to 5 in the afternoon. Uh, great way to kind of break up the weekend. Um, all right. So today we have uh, a friend of mine, someone I've, I've collaborated with on a uh, on a wine dinner recently at Lertuzzi, uh, a good buddy of mine, Mike Martin, who runs the show at the absolutely beautiful Vintry Wines down in Battery Park City, uh, one of the um, really finest wine stores in uh, in New York City, or that, I, that I've ever been to anywhere, for that matter. It's a it's a it's a gorgeous space. You've done an incredible job putting together a, a selection of top quality wines from around the world. I'm so I'm stoked to have you on the show. Well, thank you for having me. Um, all right, Mike. So how did you how did you get to to this spa- to this place where you are running this beautiful wine shop? Uh, I, when I met you, you were working at Palmal, um, working with some really really nice grower champagnes. Um, and then tell us about what how did you get to the spot where you are now? Well, I um I actually started with with the family business, um, which is Martin Brothers Wines and Spirits, uh, but it wasn't always Martin Brothers Wines and Spirits. Um, my dad and my uncle. Um, I came here from Cuba. Actually, my dad was the one who started it all off. He had escaped Fidel and uh, got on a boat with a group of people and set out to hopefully hit Florida 
and uh, their only guide was the North Star. So they get on this boat and they hit probably about every storm you could ever imagine on the way here and veered off so far that they ended up in Mexico. No. They ended up in, they ended up in Mexico. And um, once they hit Mexico, and, and many people died along the way. Many people died along the way. They either drowned or were taken by sharks, and he said that he had never seen so many sharks in his life. And, um, but when he finally made it to Mexico, uh, they found a way to, to get to Florida. And when they got to Florida, um, obviously there were many Cubans there already, and uh, they, they had gone on the radio and said, listen, we have a group of people that just arrived, and if anyone has any food, clothing, or money that they'd like to come and, and help these people with, um, we'd appreciate it. And, you know, lo and behold, a lot of people came out and gave them food and clothing and a little bit of money to put in their pocket. And, you know, my family comes from, uh, you know, they're tobacco farmers. That's what they did. So the only thing they know how to do is work. So he, uh, he immediately got a job and saved his money and uh, made it to New York, got another job here, and worked his butt off, and slowly but surely started requesting people from, from Cuba, his family. And, you know, started with his parents and his brother and, you know, they got to start working here, you know, and they opened up a little bodega on the Upper West Side, you know, and the, uh, this was in the very late 60s. And Wow, that's crazy. So when you were a kid and your dad was like, take out the trash, you're like, Dad, I don't want to take out the no, trash. Was, you, he like, was he like, you know, I, got, I went on a boat through shark-infested water with dying people to Mexico. Yeah, you, you're going to take out the you're trash. You're going to take out that trash. You're going to take out that trash. <laughs> And wow, you can't say anything to someone who is skate like that. No, 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 not at all. There's, a, there's no room. And I had, my dad, I started working in that little bodega when I was six years old. And it, it wasn't an option. You know, you were going to, on the weekend, if you ain't in school, you're going to go to work. And I was six years old. And um, it really embedded in me a type of work ethic that uh, that you just can't, you can't buy today. So that's why I... I really uh, do whatever it takes to, to try to be successful. So how do you go from, from bodega owner to Martin Brothers Wine? So at, at that time, right across the street from them, they, um, there was a little Byright liquor store. It was old Byright liquor stores. And they, um, they had gone out of business. And one of his uh, very good friends um, suggested, hey, why don't you put a wine shop? There's nothing else up here. And, you know, you'd, you'd own it. But they didn't know the difference between Pinot Grigio and Pinot Noir. I mean, they didn't know anything about wine. You know, it was Budweiser or bust. So they got the right people to come in there and start helping them out. You know, and um, and they were just you know behind the scenes. You know, they take care of everything else, and and that's how they kind of got started. You know, and you know the neighborhood loved them. They had been there so long, so you know they they definitely took care of them like you you know we would today, right? Um, and immediately they had success. So, you know, I, I just, obviously I, I remember being 14 years old in the eighth grade and it was their grand opening and they were so scared, you know, because they, you know, they were always about being safe, you know, and this was a brand new venture that they had no idea about. They didn't know how it was going to turn out, but, you know, they, they knew that if they worked hard, you know, something, something great would happen, you know, because uh, they always felt that at the, uh, at the end of pain, there's success. So they they never took the easy road. They, you know, you 
bust your hump and something good's gonna happen. So, do you know what some of the uh, more popular wines that at that time? At that time, oh god, uh, I mean, this was. Uh, I'm trying to think of this was back in '85. I mean, Sutter Home, Glen Ellen, uh, Gallo. I mean, I remember Gallo vividly. Uh, there was a lot of that. Um, but it was it was more of a liquor store mm-hmm. than it was a wine shop, and I mean very much so, because at that time it, you know, it was uh, a little dangerous to come up above 96th Street, so we were still in that era there where it was uh, the Upper West Side wasn't really what it is today, so, you know, we we had our encounters and and whatnot along the way, but it was definitely a liquor store and. Um, and they were they were good with that because they felt you know everyone knows scotch everyone knows vodka everyone yeah. knows gin so they were very comfortable with that and then um you know how I got into I worked there every week but how I got into wine was um, I really have to to thank my son Christian my oldest son because I, I was in my last semester at NYIT I studied architecture and. Um, and my longtime, she was my first girlfriend, my longtime girlfriend, um, was now pregnant. And this was back in, in 94. And, um, excuse me, 96. And I was so afraid. So I, I went to my dad and I said, Pop, you know, I, I know I'm only working weekends there, but I, I need a couple more days because I, I got a little boy coming. And, um, you know, he said, no problem, you know, you, you do what you need to do. And, you know, I started working there more and more. And, and I, it wasn't just working weekends and, and picking up boxes and making deliveries. Now, now I was involved and I fell in love with it. I mean, absolutely fell in love with it. And the more I learned, the more I loved it, you know. And now, you know, I started with, with California wine because I was very, I, I think like everybody else, it's very easy to understand at that at that point, you know, varietals on the label, and it's close to home, you know, and um, so I started working with that, and and slowly but surely, I started transforming the shop from a liquor store to a wine shop, and and make no mistake, they fought me every step of the way because they they were not feeling safe. They were spending more money. They were looking at wines that they had never seen before, and and it was just a it was turbulent all the way through. Those boys were tough. You know, the Martin Brothers, the O'Leary and Roberto Martin were some of the toughest people I've ever met in my life. And they, you want to do this, you're going to have to prove it to us every step of the way because you are spending our money. You know, this is our livelihood. And, uh, but I, I took on the challenge and, um, you know, and like I said, you know, California was kind of like the first section that, that I started working with and years had gone by and, you know, we we had some. I, I feel fortunate to have met people like Ron Metzger and Tom Bain, who were BMP employees at that mm-hmm. time, and and um, and just connoisseurs of great wine. And they would always invite me over to their homes for for these spectacular wine dinners. I mean, like thirty bottles of just unseen stuff, awesome. just just amazing stuff. Now, what happened that you uh, that you left the shop and went on to pursue other things? So. The first time that I that I had left, um, and, it, and there was no problems. Um, I told my dad, I said, "Listen, you know, we're I'm kind of like limited here, and I have an opportunity to go manage Morell and Company, 
So this is back in 1999. And, um, you know, and there was a lot of things that I wanted to see if I was right. You know, could, could I do what I thought I could do? And can I do it anywhere? You know, or do I have to be in a specific location to do what I wanted to do? And um, so, but I went down to, to Morel and I spent a year there. And I was really, there was obviously a little bit of a shock because you're around great wine all the time. You know, and 82s and 59s and Jeroboam's of this and that. I mean, it was just crazy, you know. So for me, you know, soaking all that in and, and selling because I'm a natural born salesman. So, and uh, it, was a, it was definitely a great step for me to take in my growth. So I went there. I was there for a year and I'm, I met a lot of great people. I mean, uh, I had so much great wine while I was at Morel. Not necessarily from Morel, but... That's where I met uh, Matt Wilson, who operates Suderaj in, in, uh, in California, mm-hmm. and Jack Hecker, who is part of Valkenberg International. And, and those guys, I mean, you talk to them, we, I mean, we had some runs in there where we'd have a great bottle of wine every day. I mean, sick wine. And we, just, we would just take our checks and throw it into great wine week in, week out. And um, That was me at, uh, at Oto with... Uh, <laughs> My future business partners, August August Cardona and uh, Catherine Lahr at the time, Catherine Thompson, we, we, when we all worked at Italian Wine Merchants, we went to Oto two, three times a week. Yeah. Spend, had no right spending the amount of money <laughs> that I was saying. Yeah, I couldn't afford that, but it was so much fun. But it, it, it's, it's a it's, learning experience. No question. It's, it's part of your growth. And, you know... Um, we would go out to dinner and we didn't, we'd always share the wine, by the way. I mean, I've never had a great bottle of wine that I didn't share. And we'd invite people and there'd be eight, nine, ten of us at the dinner table. One bottle better than the next. People would fly in from, from Texas or Boston. I mean, it was just sick, you know. And, um, and here we are. We're 25, 26, 27, 28, you know, and we're just balling. You know, wines that, uh, you know, are very difficult to attain today if you can. Yeah, I mean, I, I like that you're characterizing the wine industry this way because it is a very sharing, inclusive, baller industry. <laughs> no, <laughs> I wouldn't say. I mean, but I would say that, like, that I, I really do feel like if you have a great bottle of wine, the sharing it increases exponentially the enjoyment of no it. No question, no question. And um, and and I'm telling you, we would have conversations, and I would say, "Hey, Matt, I have you know." these wines here and he said i have these wines here i said so when are we gonna have i was like well we don't want to open them if it's just two or three of us we want to open them if it's like you know eight or ten of us yeah you know so everyone gets a little bit and um and everyone was very grateful for that i don't see a whole lot of that today you know um i'm very grateful for those times because we really did have some some amazing dinners and you know i mentioned ron metzger and tom bean before and you know as i was changing martin brothers uh, I remember when they first served me 82 Cheval Blanc. And that was the wine that that changed it all. It changed my thought about wine and it changed my pocketbook as well. Because after that, yeah, there was it was no holds barred. I mean, I was just, I had to make a decision at one point. Am I a collector? Because I was buying some wines to hold, you know? Or am I going to go after these great vintages that I know at some point will no longer exist? And I went after, I went after the old vintages. And, um... And I'm telling you, it was a, it was the greatest move I ever made because they they can't take that away, you know. It's all in here. Yeah, I was gonna remember that. Yeah. All right, so we're gonna take a a quick break. We're gonna be back with Mike Martin of Vintry, a man who has 
wine retailing in his blood <laughs> and working hard and just being a good dude. All right, we'll be right back with In the Drink on heritageradionetwork.org. The following program has been brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Route 11 Potato Chips dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate. An incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Route 11 Potato Chips believes comfort food should be just that. Know where your food comes from. For more information, visit rt11.com. And we're back with Mike Martin uh, of Vintry Wines, beautiful, beautiful wine shop down in Battery Park City. Uh, and uh, Mike's actually someone who I uh, recently collaborated with on a, a dinner at Lartuzzi. We had just an absolutely Legend, amazing dinner uh, featuring the wines of Giuseppe Quintarelli, uh, 12 different wines uh, supplied by, most of them supplied by Vinci, a couple we had in our cellar. Um, Mike, what was the wine of the night for you uh, that evening? Wow, there were so many that night, but I got to tell you, the 98 Amarone was... uh was a wine that I just, I absolutely loved. Oh, that 98 Amarone was drinking so beautifully. Um, and we had that decanted for three or four hours. And when we first decanted it, it you know, and I think this is a mark of a, of a really fine wine as well. First decanted it, it was really shy. And then it just started started becoming a little bit less shy, a little less shy. And then it was exuberant by the time it was ready no, to, uh, no to, question. to serve. And was, that was just one of those wines where you have it, and I mean, even before you even take your first sip, you're like, wow. Yeah. You know, and that's how I felt about that wine. Beautiful. And then the one wine that I had never had before that we, we had at that tasting, the Selezione Giuseppe Quintarelli. Correct. Have you seen that before in another vintage? This was a 2000 vintage? No. As far as I know, um, this was the only time that he had ever made that wine. So it'll never be made again. Um, he just felt that in 2000, this wine merited... Uh, a little bit more time in in cask and uh and he, I think he gave it like another three years if I'm not mistaken um or two years uh, three he gave it like another three years that's exactly the number another three years and and released it but uh, amazing wine as well impenetrable like that that wine was maybe just beginning to show itself at the end it was uh, obviously you could tell the quality but I felt a little bit guilty <laughs> it was really you good. know um it's it, it you don't you don't get to have that wine uh, often, so um, it, it really is by by chance. You know, you you try to open it up as uh, and, and try to maximize the time in the decanter, and that hopefully by the time that you pour that wine is is perfect. But uh, uh, just a little bit more time, you know. But you don't know that until you do it. Until so do, I yeah. still enjoyed the wine. So Very make enjoyable. no mistake. Very <laughs> yeah, and so we're, we've been talking about uh, doing. Dinners together in the future. It was such it was such a great success. We sold out at Lartuzzi. So awesome. stay tuned. Uh, Mike and I are going to do dinners in the future together. No question. Uh, it was it was such a pleasure to uh, to work with you. Likewise, likewise. All right. So go, getting back to uh, getting back to your story, and and I do want us to 
to talk about Ventry, but um, what was the next the next step in your journey before uh, before making it to Ventry? So um, I had gone back to to Martin Brothers, um, tore it up when I came back. Everything that I I had thought uh, could be done was mm-hmm. done. Um, I then moved on in 2010. I moved on to Palmal, um, which was another great uh, great stepping stone for me. Um, working with uh, Michael Feuerstein, and basically all the wines from a lot of the wines from Becky Wasserman, dealing with great champagne houses and great producers like Pattaya and Rosignol, uh, visiting uh, Vizar Kukar and um, uh, Loriot and Demiancio. I mean, those guys were all great. It was a beautiful opportunity for me. Um, further enhanced my appreciation for champagne, and then um, I was uh, I was contacted. Um, by uh, the Pulakakas group um, to uh, to interview for the uh, wine director position at Vintry Fine Wines, and um, once I had once they had said, okay, Mike, you know, we definitely want you. You know, you're kind of like a perfect fit here. I um I said, okay, so when do I start? But there were so many uh, delays with construction and whatnot on the build out that um, I had already told Mikey, hey, Mikey, I'm going to move on. I had worked there exactly a year. So I had to find what to do for the next six months. So um, I got a little gig over at Royal Wine Merchants with uh, Daniel Oliveros and, and Jeff Sockland. And, um, and those were some great times there, too. Um, it, you probably know the history with Daniel and Jeff and everything that's happened with, with Hardy Rodenstock and, and uh, this whole dilemma that we have these days with uh, fake wine and whatnot. Um, I can speak to you from... The time that I was there, um, I had a great time every time I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes uh, in in this business, you you trust someone that you shouldn't trust, and you make a purchase that maybe you shouldn't have made without knowing, because you just feel that everyone's always going to do the right thing. But um, they've paid dearly for it. Yeah. So for those of you who know, Ronstack is the a notorious wine counterfeiter, um, and he was implicated in the the uh, counterfeiting of potentially of the Thomas Jefferson bottle right. that was so uh, sold to Bill Coke. Bill Coke, who uh, uh, is taking it upon himself to fix everything, and good for him. Uh, <laughs> what? Uh, <laughs> I, I feel very strongly against, uh, I should say, wine counter, counterfeits is a, a horrible, horrible thing in, in our industry. Um, but what it, what measures did you see? Because I guess you, you were there in the just post Rottenstock era, or, or around the same time. I mean, I was I, I was selling fine wine throughout that entire time, you know, and I would come across bottles that, you know, you just weren't that just were you just saw were no good, you know, and there was a lot of that going mm-hmm. on prior to. To you know, Hardy's, uh, uh, you know, uh, whatever came about his his Jefferson bottling demise. But, yeah, and I and I'll be honest with you, I, I even took a break from selling fine wine for a little bit just because of what what I was seeing. So and uh, you know, your name takes an eternity to build and about thirty seconds to destroy, and and I love my name, so I protected my name. And if I saw that something was even remotely remotely uh, uh, fraudulent, I just, I, I just what, didn't What do you look for? So you see, okay, you have a bottle of 82 Petrus in front of you. Like, yeah. what do you, what do, what's the process? What do you look for when trying to determine its authenticity? I mean, the first things that are visible, obviously the label and the capsule, 
Uh, those are the, the, the first two things that you look for. I take a lot of pictures, a lot of pictures of bottles. And, um, and when I come across something that, that I'm not convinced on, I just go back into my little database and, and I look through, you know. Uh, the other day, um, Richard Betts had posted a couple of pictures of Petrus. I think it was uh, 82 and 85 or something like that. I'm not quite yeah. sure. And um, he asked which one was fake. And I knew which one was fake immediately because of the scroll on, on, on the Petrus bottle. But uh, that only comes from just seeing those bottles over and over and over and over again, you know. So... Um, it wasn't just the label, though. Raj did make a Raj Parr did make a good comment about the label and the color, but it's those little things and having that little database that allow me to to be uh, to authenticate things a little bit better. Now that you're in the position of running your own, uh, you know, the uh, Vintry, um, and you're certainly selling some very high end, some very fine wine there. What measures do you take to make sure that everything is? authentic is what it says it is well you know um when we when we opened up Vintry, a lot of the wine the initial seller that we took part in belonged to harry pulakakis and harry had only brought on premier since the the beginning of the 70s so you know there wasn't going to be any problems with that stuff um everything he bought was on premier he bought it threw it in his uh in his temperature controlled cellar and basically forgot about it uh with the exception of 71 pictures so he had bought 23 cases of 71 pictures. This is one of the great stories of Harry Pulukakis. So, uh, 23 cases of, of 71 pictures, and he drank 22 of them himself. Come he, on. <laughs> he didn't know that it was going to be at, at valued the way it is today. But um, he, even with all that drinking that he had done over the year, he still had amassed an amazing cellar. And I got to, to you know, physically count all of that it's an amazing amazing seller he's done a he's done very well for himself yeah yeah i i, I uh, admire some of the things that harry has done uh, it's pretty pretty impressive harry's restaurant's been around for quite some time he opened in in 72 and yeah. uh, you know he's another success story as well a guy that came over here same work ethic as as my dad and uncle and uh you know he there was no he was not going to be denied success so yeah the minute that he opened up his own place he said i asked him they said were you nervous I said a little bit i said did you do business right away he goes mike i did business from the get so and that just comes from doing the, you know he was at delmonico's before that mm -hmm. and and that just comes from doing the right thing the entire time that he was at delmonico's that when he finally opened up his own place everyone had knew who he was they had fallen in love with him they wanted to see him do well and and here we are you know with his empire yeah he's building now, you're, where you're located in uh, Battery Park City, you're in the, this kind of new building development. Um, uh, it, it's absolutely, it's, it's really beautiful. It's really elegant. Uh, you have Shake Shack for lunch there as well, <laughs> right yeah. around the corner. Um, uh, very close to uh, the financial area, uh, close by. Uh, our, it seems like a ritzy area to me where people would be buying lots of high-end wine. Is that, no. what, what are people drinking over there? No, they're, they're really, at the, at the very beginning I was a little afraid because uh, I thought that you know, this was going to be a, a more domestic type store. Um, I thought that they would be looking for the wines that I wouldn't normally drink. But they've been pretty open to everything I put in front of them. And it, it's not about being the most expensive. That you know, we, we do great sub 20 
and we do great 20 to 40. And for the collectors, we have wines for them as well. But Vintry really is about the entire gamut, and that's what we focus on. We want, if you want to come in and spend $15, I got something for you. And I, I like that at, at the... Uh... You know, at the fifteen dollar range, everything there, there's a purpose and there's a reason. The, the way that I first got into wine was go, walking into Italian wine merchants and buying the least expensive bottle, and the wine was delicious and I was treated with respect and it, it was a really lovely experience. And it was the least, so I went back in and bought the second least expensive bottle, <laughs> and and that was equally as delicious and, and you know, and I loved it. And so I, I feel like at, at your store, it's it's big enough that there's there's a really excellent selection, but it's small enough that you're able to have everything in there has a purpose, has a reason. You you love everything in there. No question. And, you know, we we try the wines at Vintry together as a group and because uh, I really want to know what my staff has to has to say and what they feel about each and every wine that we try. And, um, and we make the decision like that, you know. And, you know, we take a lot of pride in that. We had that little island in the center of the store. It's 25 yeah. and under. And we take an incredible amount of pride in that island there. That's amazing. So, so what, do you, what do you guys have coming up uh, next? I know we just did the dinner together. You did a, a dinner with, with Patrick over at Pearl and Right, Ash. and there, there might be another one coming up with him, um, but we haven't finalized details All on right. that yet. Well, let, let us know, and we'll certainly, uh, we'll certainly let our viewers know, or our listeners, I guess, know from, uh, from, the, uh, from the Twitter account. So anything else? Anything else planned? Um, we have our rosé tasting coming up. Uh, in May, May May seventh, if I'm not mistaken, and really, you know, things begin to quiet down a little bit for the summer because everyone right. is kind of away, and then we rev up in the fall, and we have our autumn wine festival, and we have our our bubble bash, which, which was an amazing success last year. We had 62 champagnes open for the public free of charge, and this year it'll be a hundred champagnes open to the public free of charge. What? Yeah, <laughs> it's it's amazing. And Jordi Melendo, who is a, a Spanish authority on champagne, who uh, lives about six months out of the year in Champagne. Came by and said that that was one of the greatest tastings that he had ever been to. So I was very proud of that. The the region of Champagne doesn't even put on tastings like that. You're, <laughs> you're doing them a huge service by doing this. It's no, amazing. It, everyone came out to play. Um, we had everybody, all the growers that we love, uh, presented their champagnes and. It was just a fantastic evening. Please, I, please, please let us know about this. Absolutely. We, we, we want to let everyone know. That sounds amazing. Absolutely. I'm going to try to be there. No that's, question. That's, that's pretty You're fantastic. You're invited. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, and guys, keep, uh, keep listening. Um, we'll let you know uh, when Mike and I come up with another fantastic dinner to do at Lartuzzi. Uh, we're thinking potentially fall Barolo because my, they have an incredible selection of all the great Barolo producers, especially Bartolo Mascarello, Rocchi de Manzoni, a lot of producers we really like to work with. Um, and just another, at the at the close of the show, just another reminder, this Saturday, May 3rd, at Amphora, Tequila and Mezcal with Ivy Mix is going to be a lot of fun. We hope to see you there. Thanks so much for listening. This has been In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.